Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. I'm super excited to welcome Lindsay Pollack to Leave Your Mark. Lindsay, how are you? I am so honored to be here. I'm a huge fan of the podcast, so very excited to be on an episode. Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much for being here. And I am so excited to have you on because you are such a wealth of information on so many topics that are so important to people right this second. So for everyone listening, if you haven't previously heard of Lindsay Pollock or purchased several of her many books, she was told in her first job interview that her master's degree in women's studies would get her nowhere, which is always what you want to hear. However, speech by speech, article by article, blog post by blog post, her business grew, and now she is considered one of the country's leading experts on careers, the workplace, and specifically the millennial generation. As a keynote speaker and corporate consultant, Lindsay has worked with more than 50 corporations, law firms, conferences, universities, and she helps individuals and organizations not only navigate this, but also thrive in the ever-changing world of work. And Lord knows it is ever-changing. Her clients have included Aetna, Citi, Estee Lauder, GE, Goldman Sachs, Google, Pfizer, Harvard, Yale, the list goes on. Oh, let's not forget Wharton and Stanford, of course. And of course, you're a New York Times bestselling author with soon to be four career advice books. And her next book, which comes out March 23rd, is in direct response to the COVID crisis titled Recalculating, Navigate Your Career Through the Changing World of Work. And it's really the ultimate career playbook for recent grads, career changers, and people who are transitioning, looking to excel in today's rapidly evolving and crazy workplace. Lindsay was named to the 2020 Thinkers 50 radar list. She serves as an official ambassador for LinkedIn is a spokesperson for the Hartford's My Tomorrow campaign and the chair of Cosmopolitan Magazine's Millennial Advisory Board. So Lindsay, I mean, you're like one of those people who you probably wrote your first book and you're like, never again. And then you're like, oh, just one more. And then you're like, "Mm, maybe just one more. And then you're like, okay, maybe just one more. So is this like, you feel like you have something to say and you need to put it on paper for the world or what goes through your head? Because it's not an easy process. It's not an easy process. And you and I met when you had just written your book. Um, 
they say it's like children. I only have one child, so I don't have the experience of having more than one, but you forget how hard it was and you go for it again because <laughs> you remember the joy. It's funny though. I am weird in that I like long form writing. I would rather write a book than a tweet. It just comes more naturally to me. Uh, in my very, very early days, I actually ghost wrote six books for other people. So I just, I like having my post-it notes and my folders and 900 million documents and pages. I, I can't explain it. You're looking at me like I'm crazy, but it's yeah, kind of my jam. Everyone's different. <laughs> everyone's different. The thought of writing a book instead of a tweet was really what just like made my jaw drop to the table. But also I, I just had a funny vision of like you not having strong fans or air conditioning in your house because the idea of just papers blowing all over the place when they're out on a table is probably really scary. I mean, I have my color coding system. Life is different now that we have the cloud because I used to carry discs in my purse wherever I went because I was so scared of losing my manuscripts and all of my writing because there was so much of it. Right this second, what should people be doing who need to pivot and recalculate? Because I mean, I speak to a lot of people who are like, literally, I've been looking for a job or I need a new job and they do not know where to turn. It's a great and important question because you have to start. And a lot of people get so caught up in how do I start? Where do I start? You just have to start. And in the book, I have what I call five rules for recalculators. And if I can rattle them off quickly, I think they're all really important. The first is to get more creative, which is if you were looking at five industries, you now need to look at 10. If you were looking within a 50 mile radius of your home, you're now looking at a hundred mile radius. If you were looking for full time, you have to look for part time and consulting and gig opportunities. So you have to really widen the universe of possibilities that you're considering, whether you have your own business or whether you're in a current job and want to expand. So one of the ways I think to do that is to take a career assessment that will sort of show you with your skill set, here are the other possibilities. Talk to people, ask them, what else could I do? So first is you've got to just cast a wider net in what you're looking for, whatever universe you're in. The second is prioritize action. And I was absolutely shocked when I started writing the book and researching that when job openings obviously plummeted at the beginning of COVID, so did job applications. And it should be the opposite, right? More people should be applying. But people were so paralyzed by the pandemic and by the uncertainty, which I completely understand, but you have to apply for jobs. And some people applied for 100, 200, 300, 400, and they said, do you think I'm crazy? And my answer was, well, you're no crazier than applying for one. I mean, it's going to take a lot more work and you just have to be willing to accept that, even though I have a lot of empathy that it's not fun, you've got to take action. Uh, the third of the tips was to control what you can. And we all know what you can't control, which is when are you going to get the vaccine? When is this going to be over? Is my industry going to fall apart or not? You can't do anything about that. But what you can do is reach out to someone from your college, do a mock interview with your university career center. It's really about kind of focusing on where you have control and letting the rest go if you can, which I know is not easy. The fourth is know your negotiables. You've got to know what you will and won't do. I see a lot of people who say, I'll do anything. But the reality is you wouldn't actually do anything. So <laughs> narrow it down. Um, and number five, I think is the most important. And I know you believe in this so much and you practice it, which is ask for help. And it's probably the most important, which is 
you are not alone. And some of my favorite stories were job seekers who actually networked with other job seekers, not just for support, but nobody's looking for the exact same thing. So I find something, it's not a fit for me, I can pass it on to you. And once you have that community, you're really able to go farther. And just a little tidbit that I love to share is when the pandemic first started in March, April of 2020, one of the top searches in Google was how can I help? People want to help each other. I think that's lasted this entire year. So the people who have been successful are not afraid to reach out to their friends and family and everyone in their community and say, hey, I'm looking for a job. Do you know anybody? So those are just some some starters of what I think you can do. Those are great starters. And it's funny because I had one of my mentoring events the other night. And one of the women who's a professional, she's a lawyer, she said, you know, I haven't really been networking. I just kind of feel like everyone is just like waiting. And I'm like, no, no, this is the time people are hustling. The smart people are innovating. This is not the time to just sit back and like wait till it's over. I think a lot of people do feel like they're waiting for something to be delivered to their doorstep. Like there's just all of a sudden going to be this, you know, email in your inbox that this job has opened up and it's just right for you. But the reality is like the hunt and gather phase is alive and well. And if you're someone who does that on your own and proactively, I think you can really come out on top. Talk to me about the career assessment though that you mentioned before. What's the best way to really get a true view on where you stand right now? So I love a good self-test in a women's magazine from the old <laughs> days. I would take any test that told me what I was or what I need to do or what my Myers-Briggs type is. I'm a big fan and I'm actually a spokesperson for a company called Capfinity. And they have what they call a strengths profile. And the difference between like a skill and a strength is a strength is something you're good at, but you also enjoy doing. And I think a lot of people feel like, well, I'm good at math. I guess I should be an accountant. And they roll their eyes. I'm a writer and speaker. I love to write and talk. And every assessment I ever took said, you should be a lawyer. And then I kind of went and looked into that path. I know you did the same for being a doctor. And I was like, I hate this. People fight with each other all day. I like to write and speak. Why can't I be a writer and speaker? It just sort of didn't occur to me. People make assumptions. And so what happens if you take an assessment? There are a million of them for free. Strengths Profile, there's a free version, 16personalities.com. It just starts to identify for you what you're good at that isn't necessarily a job, it will expand your list into what your skills might be applicable for it. And just to give an example, I interviewed a chef who was just tired of food service, obviously in COVID, that was not an option. But he was really, really good at logistics because he was always ordering the ingredients and planning the restaurant, all that. And he pivoted relatively easily. I think he took a one credit course to pivot from food service and the restaurant world to logistics. So sometimes it just takes sort of opening your eyes and seeing some results on paper to realize you have skills you might not even be using. So smart. So wait, you said 16personalities.com? 16personalities.com is a very lightened version of the Myers-Briggs personality test, which a lot of people might be familiar with. And I work with a company called Capfinity, C-A-P-P, Capfinity. And they have something called a strengths profile, which I like very much. Wow, I think I might do it. It sounds like fun. I always love those kind of tests. I mean, you know, I read my horoscope. I might as well read my personality type. <laughs> totally. I should say a huge resource that so many people overlook is their university career center. Even if you graduated 50 years ago, even if you just live in the community that has a college, their services are always free, almost always free. 
And you can go back anytime and they all offer career assessments. So when in doubt, go to your university career center of your alma mater, your kid's alma mater, or a local college. Had no clue. So cool. So I think one of the most challenging things for everyone right now is honestly managing teams if you're at that level remotely, but also working with colleagues remotely and being able to give feedback, receive feedback. And everyone, of course, is going through their own stuff, you know, on the personal side. So from your expert vantage point, what are some ways to sort of make it easier right now to connect with colleagues, to be able to take feedback, to give feedback, and to do your job in a way that's direct and efficient, but knowing that we can't just like walk over to someone's desk and say, hey, did you have a chance to look that up? You know, I just feel like right now, it's like every time you reach out to someone, it's a little bit annoying in some way. Yes. So it's really tough. But it's not impossible, and there are really good ways to do it. Um, I think that over-communication is sort of the quality to keep in mind. I think where a lot of people are stumbling is they're making assumptions. Well, I don't want to bother Eliza. I probably shouldn't call her. I don't know. Does she think? No. Oh, I'm sure. People are living in our heads, and that is a really dangerous place to be. So a couple of things. As an individual, Get in the habit of saying, hey, what's the best way to connect with you? Do you want to do a Zoom? Do you want to do camera on? Do you want to do camera off? I've noticed that just as you say, hey, you know, let me know some times that are good for you and what method you prefer. Now, if you're really junior, you have to adapt to the style of your boss. If your boss loves to talk on the phone and you don't, you're out of luck. You need to talk on the phone because that's how you're going to get through to them. And I actually interviewed a a manager who was a baby boomer and had a team of younger millennials in their 20s. And she said, they never call me. They're always texting me. They're always emailing me. You know, it's driving me crazy. And I said, well, did you tell them they should call you? And she said, well, no, they should just know that. And then we asked the millennials and they said, well, we thought we'd be bothering her by calling her. So you have to have these conversations about how you want to communicate so that people know. If you're a leader of a team, I think it's an act of generosity to tell them how you want to communicate, right? I think that you have to make that really, really clear. I also think that we have to allow in more of the humanity. Um, Erica Keswin, who has a new book out called Rituals Roadmap, she says, you know, start to ask people, how are you? How are you really? right? Because we need to have that moment of my kids are driving me crazy, or you know what, if we could talk in 10 minutes, it would be so much better for me. I think we have to allow a little bit more of that in. Um, And the final thing is, I think a lot of people are doing a great job, but nobody knows about it. And they're getting really resentful. So, you know, being a little bit more tooting your horn and telling people what you're working on and making sure it's visible, because particularly for those who are more introverted, this sort of, well, nobody knows what I'm doing. Nobody's paying attention. I'm working so hard. You're going to have to tell people that a little bit more. And I'm not saying it's easy, but I think that that's what's required for people to really understand what's going on. What's the best way to share information like that? Like you can't just send like an unsolicited, hey, here's my win of the week. How I mean, like I know in one of my team meetings for one of my clients, I kick off the meeting with what's a recent win. I sort of offer up the opportunity to give yourself that pat on the back. But if you work at a place that doesn't sort of have that window, what's the best way? And are you doing this with your boss? Are you doing this with colleagues? Like, who are we talking to here? So I think it's a really different conversation if you're the leader of the team or a consultant or if you're a more junior or a contributor. So if you're the leader of the team, I love that. Give people the opportunity. Say, send me your wins, send me your best accomplishments, or just send me an update this week. So I think 
that's a really good practice. And I'm hoping that a lot of the practices that we do now, we're going to carry over because I think that's a good practice if we're in the office. So absolutely huge fan of that. If you're more junior or if you're intimidated or if you're just not sure how to do this, there are a couple of things. One is to call out team wins or wins of other people like, oh, Elisa, you did such a great job on that. If you start to get in the habit of doing it for others, once in a while, you can sprinkle in one that is about you. Or you can even ask a colleague to say something good about you and kind of team up in that way. That's what work friends are for. The second thing I think is you've got to really understand what the goals of your boss or your team are and align to those. So if you were my boss, I'd say, Aliza, I know that our podcast metrics are really important. I wanted to let you know the marketing campaign that we sent out this week, these were the results that we achieved from what we worked on. So if you show that your win or your contribution is for the greater good of your team or what your boss is going for, that can be really positive. And the final thing I want to say, particularly to women, is sometimes you just have to show off. And sometimes you have to say, hey, look, I did this and it was awesome. I wanted to make sure you knew about it. And do you want to do that every day? No. But I think you have to do it because the worst mistake I see young women make is to keep their head down and say, well, someone's going to notice. And they don't. And you have to get out there and brag a little. Yeah. That's true. I mean, I do think, I mean, listen, I spent my entire career head down, like doing the work, probably hoping someone would notice. But I also grew up in a really supportive environment where my bosses did. So I think when you do have that, you're spoiled in a way and you just assume that everyone does that, but it's certainly not true. Let's talk about communication style and how it is different with regard to, you know, generations that people are in. I've noticed that some of the younger people that I work with are extremely direct and very sure of their opinions in a way that perhaps is like closing off the possibility that there could be another solution or another answer. So when you're working with different age groups, how do you suggest that people approach different styles of communication, especially in ways where it seems like a lot of responses, certainly that I've experienced in the past year, let's just say, have been super like, it's like one way, this is the way. And it's almost like, are you the boss or am I the boss? (laughs) Like, I'm not, I'm not sure. (laughs) I totally get it. And I want to reframe a little if you're open to it. Yeah. One of the things that I always say when I'm working with a team of people of different generations, different ages, is try in any situation to assume the best intentions of the other person. So if those very direct young people had the best intentions, they wanted to do the best job for you, they wanted to be amazing employees why would they be being so direct? Why do you think? I don't know. I think they want to impress you. They think that they need to be very direct to make their point. They've probably been told by somebody to be assertive. If we assume the best intentions, they're trying to be strong, right? And put themselves out there. And so if you assume that, there are a couple of things you can do. One is to say, great, you know, good thinking. Come back at me with five other ideas. I really want to stretch your thinking here. And then they're like, okay, I want to get an A plus. So I'm going to do that because I thought I was doing the right thing. I also think that often a lot of Xers, which I am, and I believe you are, and baby boomers, I think sometimes we don't coach because we kind of get offended or say, I would never do that. And we just scoff instead. Coach a little. 
and say, hey, I love how confident you are. I think it's fantastic. But in this situation, I might suggest softening it a little bit. And the reason for that is that we had so-and-so in the room and I thought their opinion. If you explain the why of why that behavior is not serving them, they'll be really grateful. I can't tell you how many times I've coached women who've come to my sessions who are dressed inappropriately for work, in my opinion. They didn't wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, I want to look as slutty as possible today so that I offend everybody. <laughs> like Nobody does that. They were trying to look good. They were trying to be professional. So when I kind of say, hey, I know that your goal is to look great and to be professional, you know, I just want to give you some coaching. Then in this situation, they always say, oh my God, thank you so much. I had no idea. So if you assume the best intention and you kind of coach them in a way that it's in their best interest, I think it can be really powerful. Or sometimes you realize maybe once in a while, we're not right. And their opinion really was good. And we're kind of glad that we had that conversation to figure out what their perspective was. So it just kind of opens up more possibilities when you assume the best intentions. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Oh, and by the way, I rarely think my opinion is right in that sense. It's more about So I like to lead with like a very positive outlook, like we can figure this out. And I think that there's this thing called bandwidth that people have different perceptions as to how wide their band can go. And I think that my band goes really, really wide. So in my view, it's like the world has so much opportunity And I'm not closing it down to say like, oh, okay, well, we can only do this one thing because we have X amount of time. So I think it's just about stretching the idea of what can be accomplished in a certain time frame and showing how things are possible, even when you view your bandwidth is, you know, at a breaking point, if you will. So I think it's like having more of like a positive mentality than a, oh, no, we can't do that. I always think about it from the bigger picture too, which is when I was coming up in the late 90s, I was super intimidated. Everybody was older and smarter and more experienced than I was. And there were no models of younger people taking the lead. Now, I do think it's worth thinking about the fact that so many younger people, millennials and Gen Zs, are seeing people like Mark Zuckerberg, people like Amanda Gorman, you know, the amazing poet at the Super Bowl and the, you know, the inauguration who have a voice and are out there doing amazing things. I think there's a little bit of like, well, I have to be that strong. I have to be on a stage. I have to be that powerful. Every model I had of success had like worked for 35 years and kind of achieved something. So I do think there's a little bit of a dark side to this of like better make a big splash. I better put myself out there. I better be really confident because other people are succeeding faster than I am. And I think that's a little bit of the dark side below this kind of behavior. That's a really good point. So let's talk a little bit about social media and the workplace. Because right now, obviously, most people are remote. And social media is one of the most effective ways we stay connected. But there comes this, and I have strong opinions about this too, but I want to hear your point of view. Like, if you follow work people. If you're a boss and you follow your employees or your employees follow each other or the employees follow you as a boss, where does the line get drawn when if you're privy to something or you see something that you're just kind of like, oh my God, I had no idea. And I so don't think this is professional and this is affecting my view of this person now professionally. What are the parameters there? It's so complicated because there are no rules. And I think that we have to acknowledge that this is, it's like bumping into your boss at a club. Like it just sometimes weird (laughs) 
bizarre, uncomfortable things happen and you're like, oh my God, there's no playbook for this. So I think number one is this is really hard. And most companies don't have a playbook for this. Most people don't have rules around it. So there's a lot of gray area. So when I give advice on this, it's always with the caveat that you are who you are and you have your boundaries that might be different from other people's. But here's what I think. First thing I think is when in doubt, be more professional, be more cautious, right? Err on the side of maybe I shouldn't post that because somebody might see it. And by the way, for job seekers, it's pretty rare that a job seeker is going to go off the rails and post something absolutely, you know, wildly offensive. But what happens all the time is they post something like, I'm so sick of job hunting, right? I met this ridiculous recruiter. Nobody's writing back to me. And that attitude is so negative that you're not doing anything, quote, wrong. But if someone sees it, they get the impression that you don't want to be doing this. So that can be really negative. The second thing is from a recruiting standpoint and bosses, half of them say to me, I never look, I don't care. That's your personal life. And the other half say, I read everything that my employees put because I want to know. And it's the World Wide Web. It's public information. So of course, I'm going to check it out. You don't know which one your boss or your recruiter is. And so you have to assume that people are looking at stuff. So if that's true, I think there are two things to think about. One is, do you care? Because I've had people who say, look, I don't want to work for a company where it's not okay for me to be who I am on the internet. And if that is true for you, go for it. If you're willing to lose a job so that you can tweet about certain issues, there was somebody who was very interested in politics and said, that's who I am. And if you want to fire me for saying what I say about politics, then I'm okay with that. I respect that decision. But for a lot of people, I would just say, take a breath before you post and say, if my boss saw this, if my best client saw this, if a job interviewer saw this, would I be comfortable? Because that's the world we live in. So again, it's really complicated, but I think you have to kind of decide where your boundaries are. Yep, totally. What are your tips for a great elevator pitch? Great elevator pitch has to be authentic to you in a conversation starter. So I am not a fan of a canned pitch. You know, my name is Lindsay Pollock. I'm a dynamic and, you know, interesting speaker. Like that's so fake. I think you have to think of it as beginning of a conversation. So I would talk about who you are, what you're doing now, and what it is you're looking to do. So my name is Lindsay Pollock. I'm an author and speaker. I'm making this up, but I'm really eager to start a podcast. I'd love to hear about yours so that I can learn a little bit about what you do. I think it really needs to end with a segue to the other person as opposed to being its own little mini speech. What's the advice you give people? To absolutely say it out loud and not just think it. Mm. Well, I always put in the perspective of like, if you were in the elevator with your CEO and your CEO didn't know you and they were like, hey, um, what's your name? What do you do? That moment, that deer in headlights moment of not being able to articulate exactly what you do or what you want to do and to lose that moment, that minute in the elevator with a CEO, that opportunity, I think is so crucial to just know how you deliver that information in a really succinct and polished way. So I think you have to practice it. I love the advice to practice because I give the same advice about interview questions and salary. Because when I went on my first job interview for Working Women Magazine, after the one where I didn't get the job because I was a women's studies major, um, (laughs) I had never said the number out loud. And my voice cracked when I said (laughs) $45,000 because I'd never actually said the words out loud. Practice, practice, practice. I totally agree with that. And I know you're a huge believer in interview prep. 
who should you do interview prep with? I don't care. Do it with your dog. Do it with your kid. Do it with your sister. <laughs> do it with your best friend. Do it on your phone by yourself. There's software on the computer where you can do it and record it and people will listen to it. Your college career center. Again, just do it so that you are so comfortable with your content that you're not freaking out. It's like preparing for a test, right? You can't wing it you know, like you would wing a physics test, you're going to go in and be nervous and uncomfortable and get things wrong. But if you know that you've said it a 100 times, you're going to be much more fluid. And there are millions probably of websites and books from the library that will tell you the 10 most common interview questions, you know, that they're going to ask you, tell me a little bit about yourself. Why are you interested in this position? What are your biggest strengths and weaknesses? You can prepare all of that. Yeah, you might get one question that you didn't anticipate. But most of it, you can absolutely prepare. Don't sound canned as you said, but you want to be really fluent with your information. What is the protocol these days after the interview? So here's where I'm really old fashioned. It took me years to give up on the idea of the handwritten thank you note, because I remember writing those, you know, 200 bat mitzvah thank you notes when I was 13 (laughs) and kind of got in that habit in my pink stationery with my purple pen. So it took me a long time to change that. I think now it has to be an email. And I think it has to be same day. The advice used to be 24 hours, but the world moves fast. And frankly, if I interview at 9 a.m. and I haven't heard from you by 5, I'm getting a little bit concerned. So I'd say six hours max, short and sweet, but really important. You're probably going to be interviewed by multiple people. Do not send a cut and pasted thank you email to all of the six people interviewed. Make sure that you tweak them a little, mention something personal. doesn't have to be fancy, but it has to be authentic. Such good advice. I think the non-cut and paste, also because we all forward it to each other. Don't they know that? I mean, I can't tell you how many jobs people have lost because five people got the same email. Don't like, it breaks my heart when people lose job opportunities for things like that. That is so fixable and avoidable. So when you do an amazing job, don't do things like cut and paste the email, like send a tweet that you're sick of job hunting all that kind of stuff just gets in the way of you being amazing. So don't fall into those traps. It's so easy to avoid. Don't get lazy at the last minute. I agree. If you're a college senior and you're heading into this world we live in professionally now, what should these people be doing? How are they navigating the job market? right now? First of all, if you're a college senior right now, I love you. You are loved. You are adored. People (laughs) are thinking about you. I was an RA, Aliza. That's like my origin story. And I think like once an RA, always an RA. Um, My cousin, Olivia, she's my youngest cousin in my whole family, graduated from Berkeley last year, class of 2020. Went home from spring break, never went back. And it was just the most devastating experience for a college student. And she said, you know, I always feel like people are going to look at my resume for the rest of my life and say, class of 2020, woo. And I think it's be class of 21 also, sadly. And so what I would say is people are going to ask you for the rest of your life, what was that like? What did you do to get through it? How did you handle it? So I'd really encourage a college student to think ahead 10, 20 years and say, how do I want to answer that? And it's okay to say, I struggled, or I took care of a loved one who was ill, or I babysat my younger siblings who were homeschooling, or took care of my elderly parents, what have you. But you don't want to say, I don't know, like, I just kind of like, did it. Think about what you want to do. My cousin ended up volunteering as a contact tracer, right, to help and support. I also think to be like a little bit, you know, transactional about it, you have an opportunity 
because people are very empathetic to somebody who's graduating from college into a pandemic. I know I would take your call. Please call me. If you are graduating, people have a lot of empathy. So that college career network, your parents' friends, your friends' parents, your professors, there's a tremendous amount of support going back to those college career centers. People feel for you right now. Um, job opportunities are down, but they are not gone. A lot of companies are still recruiting. And my favorite resource for college students, there are two websites, LinkedIn and a site called Handshake, which have a special section of who's hiring now. And Handshake has one for who's hiring graduates now for companies that are specifically going out there and saying, we want recent college grads. We need you. We want to support you. So look for people who are doing that. You're kind of in a special category. So take advantage of it. That's such great advice. That should be on a billboard somewhere. I've, I've never even heard of Handshake. There you go. Welcome to my world. Lindsay, so good. So in your new book, Recalculating, Navigate Your Career Through the Changing World of Work. Since you're a total veteran, did you learn something new yourself that you were like, wow, I'm really glad I did this? I'm kind of embarrassed to tell you. Well, now it's the moment to be embarrassed. Of course, I'm going to tell you, I mean, you know, on a national podcast. Um, so the title, obviously, you can guess is like a GPS recalculating. And I literally, it's weird, I've had so much trouble naming my other books. And this one, the name came first, where I was just sitting there in like May. And I said, God, I just picture all of us in our cars, like we were just driving along, la di da di da. And then suddenly, it was like, wait a minute, I'm going the wrong way, or something happened, COVID, I need to recalculate. And it kind of made me optimistic that, okay, there's another way to go. And you just have to find it, right? Your GPS never lets you sit there, right? It shows you another way. And I thought, well, people have to find the other way. Now, like we've already talked about so funny, like the way the conversation has gone. I've always been the like action person, like write this, say this, go to handshake, go to your career center, take an assessment. I've been very to-do list oriented, very like kind of serious. And with this book, it just, it couldn't work that way because I was sad. Everybody was sad. It was hard. And the entire first chapter of this book is about mindset and how you can take care of yourself first and get in the right mindset. I'm embarrassed to say I had never written about mindset before. I would just be like, all right, here we go. Resume, LinkedIn profile, cover letters. Like, let's do this. And I really stepped back and everyone I interviewed was like, first, you got to take a breath. You got to get in the right mindset for this. You've got to put stuff aside. You've got to think positively that things are possible. And I learned a ton from it. And I think it really serves the book and anyone who's job hunting now, which is if you don't get your mindset right and believe that you can get a job or that you can get a promotion, it's never going to happen no matter how much you do otherwise. So that was my biggest lesson from this book. First of all, that's a great lesson. Second, I really relate to that only because I think if you're very much just like a very action oriented person, which you are, I am too, I'm always focused on the to-do list. and what outcomes need to happen. And I don't ever give myself the luxury, if you will, of sort of like, oh, well, what is my mindset? How do I get myself into that space to be able to think a certain way? I think that that's almost like pampering yourself in a way. It's almost like a spa day for like <laughs> your professional mind. I mean, I don't ever do that. I literally never think about my mindset ever. Like it's just like, okay, what do I have to accomplish today? So I'm very cut and dry about it. And I imagine you are too. But I think that's a, like a nice way to treat yourself. 
You know, it's funny because what I forgot is 20 years ago, I uh, went to graduate school in Australia on a Rotary scholarship. I had this amazing adventure in Melbourne, Australia. It was heaven and paradise. I came back in the dot com with my master's in women's studies that I got in Australia. And I got my dream job at Working Woman. I loved it. I would still be working there, but it went bankrupt. And it was one of those dot com busts. And then almost immediately after 9 11 happened, and I was living in New York, and I was paralyzed. Because not only did I think there were no jobs, I thought it was offensive to apply. Yeah. Like, how could I apply for a job? And I mean, people are suffering. We were attacked. I mean, it was just horrible. And I probably didn't work for about six months. I freelanced. I did a little of this, a little of that, but I really was depressed and it got in my way. And, and, you know, I think it's a, a thing you have to go through in life, but it was really hard. And it wasn't until I kind of believed it was possible and I was able to kind of get myself together that I was able to get a job. So it's funny, I had been through it myself, but you kind of forget that stuff. And it really brought me back to that experience because I think there were some parallels with 9-11 in the aftermath and what people are going through with COVID where there was just so many bigger things to think about than getting a job, but you still had to be employed. Yeah. I mean, I think the world just keeps on throwing shit at us and hoping we (laughs) just like deal. I don't know. So your books are catered toward millennials and Gen Z, but what can Gen X and boomer leaders learn from your books? I always get these emails every once in a while. I'm sure you get them from your book too. They're like, hi, I wasn't supposed to read your book because I'm not the target demographic, but I read it anyway. And you know, such and such. Um, I think it's kind of that idea of beginner's mind of what would you do if you had it to do all over again, if you were starting from scratch. And the reality is everybody can start over whenever they want. So, you know, I think particularly now when we hear so much in the news about reskilling and upskilling and jobs of the future, I don't think anybody can rest on their laurels right now and say, well, I've learned enough and I've met enough people and I've, you know, (laughs) here I am. I think you (laughs) used to, like, in all honesty, be able to do that, right? You could work at a company for 20 years and be like, all right, I'm going to like ride it out. I don't think anyone can do that anymore. And so I think when you go back to that mindset of being a student or a recent grad, when there's so many opportunities, there's so many things you could do, the world is ahead of you. People are doing that now at 50 and 60 in a way that I don't think they did before. So I think, again, it's that mindset and that optimism that, Mm -hmm. hey, anything's possible that I think is really appealing about that stage of life. People call you like a generation translator. How did you become skilled in understanding the nuances of all these generations and how they communicate with each other? I didn't mean to. I can't. It's not women's studies. I didn't even mean to have the women's studies degree. Like, it, it's so funny how things happen. Uh, my mom started her own business when I was a kid. And I literally would be like in the station wagon and she was listening to, you know, motivational speakers. So I think I had like Tony Robbins on the brain at a, a very young age. And the reason I got the women's studies degree was because I wanted to study women in business and women starting their own businesses. But I couldn't do econ or like it just sort of nothing else works. So I was like, well, it has women in the title. So I'll do women's studies. And then I kind of ended up on the more junior end at working woman because I was so young and I didn't really have any credentials to do anything other than talk about young people. So I kind of got in that space. And I did that for 10 years. I was a college campus speaker. um, And you mentioned in my bio, I served as a campus spokesperson for LinkedIn. I don't do that anymore, but I did it for a long time. And then what started to happen was people would come to my events and read my books and say, well, what about everybody else? And I really was like, I don't know. (laughs) I guess I better figure it out because I've only studied this. And I was getting older. I'm a Gen Xer. And there are a million books. I kind of am the sort of 10,000 hours type 
person, you know, I didn't get a degree in it, but there are tons of books and I do tons of research and tons of interviews. And I partnered with a lot of organizations and started to figure out why is everybody so confused and distraught about millennials? Then I learned about boomers and Xers and kind of the whole thing. And I wrote my book, The Remix. So that book came about because I wanted to learn about it. And my way of learning is writing. So I studied it that way. And the thing I love about generations is we all get it because we're all part of families and families are multi-generational. So if you think of that kernel of knowledge that I understand that my grandparents are different from my parents or different from me and so on, it kind of made sense. And I just applied that to the workplace context. That actually makes so much sense. I'm trying to think like multi-generations in my family. It's funny. In my particular family, we all have the same way of speaking to each other. Like we're all big mouths and we're all super direct and it's like anything goes and every single person was the same, whether it was my late grandmother or my mom or my sister. Well, what's really funny is generation is just one piece, right? So I remember I was with a group of lawyers and they said, no, no, no. We talk like lawyers. That's primary and our generations are secondary. Or I'm a woman and you know my gender is primary to my generation. Some people feel like their generation is like the most important thing. For you, maybe it's your family style is the most important. And then generations come after that. What's like the number one thing you hope people get out of this book? The number one thing I hope is that people realize they don't have to start over. That a pivot or a lane change or recalculation takes everything and all the work that you've done and everything you've done in your life to this point, and it might shift it around a little bit, but you're not starting from zero. I think people get really paralyzed when they worry about that. So uh, one of the most inspirational things in the book was I interviewed people who have a mindset totally different from mine. I'm much more of a pessimist, but they were like, you know, a mom who had been home for 10 years and was applying for a corporate job. She's like, well, I think I'm a better candidate than all the people with corporate experience because I was a mom. And she just went in and said, I'm going to treat it as an advantage. And she got the job because she had the mindset that it was right. She figured out in a very savvy way how to spin it. And she had the skills. Anything is possible if you are willing to put in the work and have the attitude that you can make it happen. There is so much that's possible, but we often look for why we can't do something rather than why we can. So I have a mental image right now. Have you ever been to the Hamptons? Yes. Okay. So in certain parts of the Hamptons, your ways will be recalculating and it will just keep on recalculating because there's no Wi-Fi. There's just no reception and there's no resolution. So I'm picturing how some people may feel like they've been recalculating or they are doing the right things, but nothing seems to be sticking. So... For people in that category who they've listened to this podcast, they've you know done the personality test, they've done the assessment, they've done all these things, how do they stay motivated? And how do they not lose hope for sort of having that breakthrough moment when it's just hard? And by the way, that always happens. <laughs> I never have reception. I'm constantly recalculating. I love this image. You're like the second person who says, what if you lose your Wi-Fi? What then? I was like, that's not part of the book. I'm so sorry. I I don't know. You go somewhere with Wi-Fi and recalculate that way. So, okay. But I like the way you worked it into the conversation. Okay. So here's a, a fact that's not fun, but it's true. Sometimes you have to take a job that's not good. And sometimes you have to stay in a job that's not good. And sometimes you have to take a really shitty job that you don't want because you need a job. And you know what? It's okay. And I wrote an entire chapter of the book on how to make any job into a good job. You can have the absolute worst job. 
but you are going to learn something. Maybe you're going to learn that you never want to do that again. Maybe you're going to say, you know what, this job sucks. So I'm just going to be like brazen and outspoken and like, see what happens, or I'm going to ask for a promotion or whatever. So I don't care if it's working at Starbucks, driving a truck for Amazon, working in a factory, babysitting, whatever you need to do, there is no shame. By the way, every recruiter said, whatever you do between 2020 and whenever the pandemic ends, people are going to be very forgiving and understanding that you had to take care of yourself. So sometimes you have to bite the bullet and do something imperfect and maybe even really unpleasant, but you have to go in with the attitude, all right, I'm going to make something of this. I interviewed a woman who went and worked at a grocery store because those jobs were easy to get beginning the pandemic. And she said, you know what? I love talking to people. It's easy, so I don't have to use a lot of brain power. I come home at night and I've been writing and I've been exercising and I've been doing stuff. And you know what? I kind of like it. I'm not going to do it forever, but it's okay. So sometimes you just have to do the imperfect thing. I'm so glad you mentioned that because it's a hard pill to swallow, but it really is the reality of many situations. And I think that's probably the best chapter in the book, to be honest, because I actually, in a way, regret, you know, my book cover is leave your mark, land your dream job, killing your career, rock social media, right? The landing the dream job part, I almost wish I didn't put that on the cover because it's not always about landing your dream job. So I think that setting your own expectations is really important also. And knowing that just because you're in that particular situation right this second doesn't mean you're going to be in that situation forever. And I feel like it's always exciting to see what doors open based on like the last door you walk through. That so resonates with me because I got my dream job right out of grad school and the company went bankrupt and I didn't have my dream job anymore. And that was so devastating. And I'll tell you one of the things that I say very early on in the book, and I say it to a lot of people that I coach who are very junior, I have never, ever met a very successful person who has said, it was just a cakewalk the whole way. I just got dream job after dream job. And every boss I ever had was delightful and no clients were ever difficult. And, you know, it's just not possible. The people who succeed are the ones who overcome problems, who are assigned the difficult client and win them over, who get the turnaround region. It's never a cakewalk. And the earlier in your career, you can start to have those road bumps. Later on, you're going to be so grateful because you'll say, I'm so glad I learned that early because now I don't get so thrown off course by that. Yeah, it's 100% true. So how do you ultimately want to leave your mark, Lindsay? It's my favorite question on your podcast, and I love the answers. Um, I want to leave my mark by doing my best to help other people avoid the mistakes I've made and learn from what I've done. It was kind of what I wanted as an RA, and it's what I want for my whole career. The reason I write my books and talk about what I talk about is if I learn something, I want it to help make your way a little bit easier. I love that. I feel like you haven't made so many mistakes, though. Do you think you have? In my head, I make a lot. I think the biggest mistakes, and it's funny, like I read this book about like what people say when they die. <laughs> I don't know if that's helpful, but it's always the things you didn't do that you regret more than the things you did. So I don't think I've made a ton of egregious mistakes, but I think I have avoided doing things because I was afraid of making mistakes that I regret. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, Lindsay, your books are always a wealth of information. You are so good at what you do, so eloquent. And I really hope people listen to your advice and pick up a copy and actually pick up a copy of all of her books because they all are very specifically like important to the success of one's career. So thanks for coming on. So good to see you. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up a copy of my best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. If you're on Instagram, make sure to follow at Leave Your Mark Podcast to stay up with the latest episodes. And of course, say hi to me at Aliza Licht XO. If you're on Twitter, definitely reach out at Aliza Licht. I would love to hear from you. If you want to subscribe to my newsletter or attend a future virtual mentoring event, go to alizalick.com for more information. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.